The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. Uh, 22 weeks ago, we read these words. In the beginning, God. As we started this sermon series through the first 11 chapters of Genesis, we read, at, uh, we read In the Beginning, God. Uh, the series for this, these 22 weeks through the first 11 chapters of Genesis, has been called Our Story Begins, but those first four words declare that this is really God's story, and we have been mercifully included in it, and we're really thankful for that. We've hit that nail pretty hard throughout this entire series. So hopefully, uh, of the things that have stuck through this, that's one of them. This is God's story, but we've been mercifully included in it. So tonight what we're going to do is we're going to wrap up chapter 11. This is the last sermon in the series. Um, if you're familiar with chapter 11, or if you're not, you're about to know this. Uh, it's a genealogy. Woohoo! So even though there have been multiple genealogies throughout the text we've been studying in this series... And the truth is, it's, it, it can be hard sometimes to understand why they are important. I'm really super excited to study this one with you tonight. Let's just remember a couple things. One, that all Scripture is God-breathed. It's profitable. And we know this. If we ask for the Holy Spirit's help, and we are willing to look and to dig together, there is always precious gold within God's Word for us. There's, there's truth, and there's help for us, and uh, we're thankful for that. And uh, before we dig into this, I really just, in a serious way, I want to give honor to this church body here uh, at Love City, because Paul called the Bereans noble, uh, and that was because of their commitment to the scriptures. And this church has not only hung in here over 22 weeks through some pretty difficult terrain in terms of the text, but you've not just like hung on, but you've pressed in to learn and to grow uh, from all that God has taught us from these scriptures. And so I'm super just thankful to be a part of a church that uh, holds God's word in high esteem and, and that is also hungry for the spiritual nourishment that his word provides. And so uh, I give you guys honor, and I'm just thankful to be a part of what God's doing here. So uh, let's finish this chapter, and we'll see what God wants to teach us tonight. Okay, so like I said, we're in Genesis 11, and we are starting in verse 10. I'm going to go all the way to the end. Here we go. These are the records of the generations of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and became the father of Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived 500 years after he became the father of Arpachshad, and he had other sons and daughters. Arpachshad lived 30 years, sorry, 35 years and became the father of Shelah. And Arpachshad lived 400 years, 403 years after he became the father of Shelah, and he had other sons and daughters. Shelah lived 30 years and became the father of Eber. And Shelah lived 403 years after he became the father of Eber, and he had other sons and daughters. Eber lived 34 years and became the father of Peleg, who was not a pirate. And Eber lived 430 years after he became the father of Peleg, and he had other sons and daughters. Peleg lived 30 years and became the father of Ru. And Peleg lived 209 years after he became the father of Ru, and he had other sons and daughters. Ru lived 32 years and became the father of Serug, and Ru lived 207 years after he became the father of Serug, and he had other sons and daughters. 
Sarug lived 30 years and became the father of Nahor, and Sarug lived 200 years after he became the father of Nahor, and he had other sons and daughters. Nahor lived 29 years and became the father of Terah, and Nahor lived 119 years after he became the father of Terah, and he had other sons and daughters. Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarah, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Sarah was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarah, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan, and they went as far as Haran and settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Praise God for his word. Amen. So this, this genealogy has a very important function in the story. This is the connective tissue between the time of Noah and his sons, specifically Noah's son Shem, and the time of Abram, who God later renames Abraham. Now, in verses 15 through 17, you'll see the name Eber, which some scholars believe is the root from which the word Hebrew comes. Either way, the list of names here is an incredibly important historical tracing of God's plan of redemption. Okay? If chapter 12 just started with, like, you know, say 11, you get the Tower of Babel, and then chapter 12 just opens up with, you know, and sometime later there was this guy named Abram. It would, it would reduce the credibility of the account, but we would also miss something crucial. We would miss God's patient and meticulous weaving of his will throughout these generations. And really, this should bring us hope and encouragement. Just seeing that the, the maybe 400 some odd years here that's recorded down through these generations that God is working. Uh, we're not given the details right here of the triumphs and the failures of these many generations between Shem and and Abram, but we know things about it because we know things about all generations, right? We know that there was sin, and there was struggle. There was faithfulness, and there was faithlessness. And through it all, through all those things, God was patiently planning, and he was unfolding this beautiful story that eventually leads to Christ, and also includes us sitting here as believers in 2018, and ultimately leads to people from every nation, tribe, and tongue gathered around his glorious throne. It's all tied together. Now, some of you might be sitting here and wondering or thinking, maybe the connection's vibrant for you, maybe it's fuzzy, maybe it's non-existent, but I want to address how, why is this our story? Why are we beating that drum so loud? How do we connect to Shem's family line and to Abram, right? Because you may be thinking, surely we're not all descendant from Shem's line. Some may be Ham, some may be Japheth. So what's the deal there? Why is, why is this our story? This, the, the story goes down, Shem's lineage here ends up at Abram and then goes on from there. What happened to the rest? Well, let me read you something from Galatians. It says this, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. That's his fancy way of saying, I got one question for you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? 
Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those... I want to read that differently. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith, who are sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Down towards the end of that chapter, it says this, but before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Why does this matter? Because this genealogy traces Shem down to what? Down to Abram. We are all Abram's descendants who have come to Christ by faith. Praise God. This shows us beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is indeed our story. We are tied to this history in Genesis, not by something so feeble as biology, but by the eternal bonds of the blood of Christ, our King. This is why the Bible is so precious to those. Those of us who are Abraham's descendants by faith. Because this is our story. It is the story from which all other stories arise. And it is beautiful, and it is true, And it is powerful. Because really what this set of verses that we read today does, it connects us from those first 11 chapters of Genesis, and then it connects us into the rest of basically the history of of Abraham and the patriarchs. and on. It's, It's the connective tissue that links us. It's the bridge to the rest of the story. And so what I want to do is uh, I want to walk us through this story. What is this story we've been talking about for 22 weeks? This is going to be an abridged version, right? So if I leave your favorite story out, don't get mad. Can't cover it all. But there are more events and there are more people than could be mentioned. But I really think it's going to be good for us as a result of these, these texts, this, these scriptures here leading us into it. For us to hear something like, it'd be far, uh, far less profound, I'm sure, uh, but something like what Jesus taught those two disciples on the road that day when he rebuked them. And uh, the scriptures say that he went on to show them how all of the scriptures were pointing to him and speaking of him. And so uh, I just, I think there's great value in us having taken all this time kind of setting up the fir- and walking through the first 11 chapters to really understand what, what is this story we keep calling our story? What is the Bible really showing us? Is it actually what it oftentimes gets treated like, which is a fragmented set of ancient stories that have a moral that hopefully you can live a better life by 
obeying? Or is it really one beautiful, redemptive narrative that leads all the way up to today and applies in a very vibrant, real way? And so there's going to be some overlap, but let's, let's just walk through the story of the Bible. We go back to Genesis 1, God creates. Everything is perfect. Everything is beautiful. And then man decides to sin, to do the one thing God asked them not to do. He said, you can eat of all the trees in the garden, but just don't eat of that tree. And you better believe it. That's the one we ate from. And so man falls, he sins. But in Genesis 3, immediately, even as the consequences are being laid out, we see the first foreshadowing of God's plan of redemption as he lays out the consequences to the serpent for his part in this whole deal of mankind falling away in sin from the God that made them. He says to the serpent that uh, he's going to bruise the seed of woman's heel, but that seed is going to crush his head. And so there we see the first glimpse of the fact that God was not caught off guard by any of this, but he has a plan that he's prepared. Moving on from there, uh, Adam and Eve have sons and daughters, Cain and Abel, Seth, and on down the history goes, comes to the time of Noah. Noah says, uh, God says to Noah, you need to, you need to build an ark because I'm going to flood the earth. Noah, in righteousness and faith, believes God, spends roughly 100 years of his life building an ark by which he and his family are saved, uh, and also two of every kind of animal uh, and a few more of the, the clean ones. The flood happens. They float around for a year. The waters recede. They come off. Noah builds an altar, sacrifices to God. Then shows that uh, even a cataclysmic flood isn't enough to get our attention sometimes as humans because sins almost immediately afterwards with alcohol, gets drunk, gets naked, passes out, causes sin to go down his son's family line uh, as he disrespects him. People spread out from there, but then they kind of find a place they want to gather. That hits us at Genesis 11, Tower of Babel. Men decide, I don't really want to fill the earth and multiply. Let's all gather together. Let's build a big tower that makes us look great. God says, no, we're not going to do that. Comes down, confuses their language, and scatters them. Out they go. That leads us to where we just found ourselves today, where the Bible traces down Shem's line, which is what we read today, and, and opens up this story of a guy named Abram that God comes to and, and calls him to go to this place. Go, and I'll show you where I'm taking you. He's, heading, he's taking him towards the land of Canaan, this promised land. He makes promises to Abram that, that one, makes him go out and look at the stars and says, one day your, your seed's going gonna to have as many as the stars in the sky. And, and he's, he's really struggling with that because Sarah, his wife, was barren. They had not had a child. And so there's this, this promise made that there's going to be a son. And 25 years later, Isaac is born. Isaac's name means laughter because when Sarah first heard God's promise, she, she laughed. She laughed to herself and maybe not hardened disbelief, but almost like, we'll see. She was getting pretty old and faith to believe God in this was tough. But part of why Abraham is the father of our faith and is the first one listed there is because he did believe God. So Isaac is born, some years pass by, and there's this interaction between Abram and who's now Abraham, because God's changed his name, and Isaac. God calls him to take Isaac up a mountain and to sacrifice him. This one son he gave him, this son of promise, the son that came out of supernatural conception because physically and naturally they couldn't get it done. This son now God wants back, given as a sacrifice. And so 
Abraham, surely confused, bewildered, but unwilling to disobey God, takes his son up this mountain. Isaac carries the wood for the sacrificial fire on his back, which, uh, if that's not a forward echo of King Jesus carrying his cross up a hill, I don't know what is. And so, again, we see God just showing glimpses of what it is he's doing. Abraham and Isaac are on top of that mountain. Abraham gets to the point that he raises the knife. God stops him. There's a ram in the thicket. Another sacrifice is provided. Isaac grows up and he marries Rebekah. They have two sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau is a man of the field. It says he's covered in red hair. Jacob likes to hang out in the tents. Likes to stay home with mom and cook. Jacob is a bit of a deceiver. His mother favors him. And so they trick their father Isaac into giving Jacob his blessing. There's also an account of Esau coming in real hungry one day and trades his birthright for a bowl of soup. Uh, and this is not just some random story about soup. It's, uh, it's an indictment upon us as humans and how frivolous we are sometimes in giving away the precious things that God has given to us. Jacob then goes on. He has sons. One of those sons, the youngest son, his favorite son, his name is Joseph. Joseph lacks tact, to say it uh, gracefully. And, and so he's starting to have these dreams where everyone else in his family is bound down to him. And so he starts to talk about that. He's just talking about his dream, but he doesn't understand that's going to be upsetting for everyone else. And so his brothers begin to conspire against him. There's an occasion where they're all out together. They cook up this lie where they, they take his coat from him, this colored coat his brother or his father had given him, a sign of his favoritism. They dip it in blood, and then they, they end up casting Joseph into a pit. But one of the brothers feels bad about it that was a part, so they pull him back out, and they sell him to slave traders that are headed to Egypt. They go back, and they tell their father, your son was torn apart by an animal. It's all gone. He's, he's, he's done. Uh, Jacob, of course, is broken by this, but the, the story then follows Joseph into Egypt, who quickly finds favor, but then quickly is, is lied about. There's a woman there that tries to uh, harness his affections, we'll say, and uh, he righteously denies her, but a woman scorned sometimes is not having that, so she lies about him. He ends up thrown in jail, but it's in jail that he meets a couple of people, interprets dreams for them, and then word ends up getting to the Pharaoh, the, the, the big daddy, the king of Egypt at that time, that this guy can interpret dreams when he starts having some troubling dreams of his own. And so he brings Joseph up. Joseph interprets those dreams, and because of the wisdom of God flowing through him, that Pharaoh puts him in charge, gives him his signet ring, says, you're second in command. Only, only I have more authority than Joseph. Do whatever he says. And so they start to prepare for this famine that was revealed in the Pharaoh's dreams. And so this famine... Is coming, they prepare for years, and then it comes. And that famine is so severe, it doesn't just affect Egypt, it affects all the surrounding areas. And it affects even the family of Joseph, that uh, his brothers and his, his father that, that he was separated from earlier. And so they end up coming to Egypt looking for grain, trying to not starve to death. And Joseph interacts with his brothers again. There's, there's forgiveness and uh, there's, a beautiful, just, there's, there's a beautiful foreshadowing in Joseph's life of the fact that he was put down into a pit. He was put down into a place of, of difficulty. But out of going through that difficulty, he was brought up to a place of prominence where he was able to facilitate the salvation 
of not only the entire country, but also his family. Joseph is pointing forward to Jesus yet again. The Pharaoh tells Joseph to bring his family. They can come and be in Egypt with him. And so they put him in some of the luscious land that they have available there. The next thing that happens is that that Pharaoh dies. And a Pharaoh that didn't know about Joseph or Joseph's family, didn't care about them, uh, begins to be a little insecure about how many of them there are, how powerful they're getting within their borders. And so he starts to enslave them and use them to build great store cities and monuments to his own greatness. And, but even putting this hard work on them isn't enough to stop them. They, they, they seem blessed. They just keep being fruitful and multiplying. That same command from the beginning seems to be happening, and they're, they're growing, and they're, they're in number and in strength. And so this Pharaoh decides, here's what we're going to do. We're going to start murdering the male children of these Hebrews. We're going to slow them down, make sure they don't have the strength to overthrow us. And in the midst of that, there's a little boy born. His name is Moses. And his mother cannot bear the thought uh, of him being killed. And so they, they make a little basket covered in pitch and put him in the, in the river there and float him away, just putting him basically in God's hands. And it's one of Pharaoh's daughters that end up finding Moses, bringing him in. He's trained in the way of the Egyptians. Becomes a prince of Egypt, essentially. And then there's one day that Moses is walking around and he sees some Egyptians abusing Hebrews and he's enraged by this and he murders the Egyptians that were abusing the Hebrews. You can't do that. That's no good. So because of that, he has to flee. He flees out to Midian. He's out in the wilderness tending sheep for 40 years. He has an experience there where a bush lights on fire. God talks to him from this bush. The bush is burning but not being consumed. God calls Moses to go back to Egypt to be his mouthpiece and messenger and take a message to this Pharaoh and say, you're going to let my people go. Let them come and worship me. Moses is a little unsure about that right off the bat because he says, I don't, don't talk real good, God, but God comes up with a plan for that and says, I want you to go. You're my chosen instrument. Moses goes back, tells the Pharaoh what God said. The Pharaoh hardens his heart, doesn't want to hear it. Ten plagues ensue. Finally, by the end... Uh, the last one is the death angel is going to come through and the firstborn of every firstborn son of every family, even of the livestock in all of Egypt is going to die. And here, God kind of ratchets up the beautiful imagery pointing us to his forward plan of redemption because he tells the people of Israel to take a lamb and to slaughter it, to take that blood from that lamb and to put it over their doorpost. And that's what's going to keep that death angel from entering their house. They're going to be saved by the blood of this lamb, which points forward undeniably to the blood of Christ. It's the, it begins really this understanding of that blood atones for sin and it covers us and saves us from the wrath of God, which we all rightly deserve. And so the people, they do that and they are saved and Egypt is wrecked by this last plague. And so the Pharaoh says, go, get out of here. Sends them with a bunch of stuff. But they get down the road a little bit, he has a change of heart. He sends chariots and horses and armies to chase them. And so the people of Israel, they find themselves up against the edge of the Red Sea. And at the Red Sea, uh, they got Egyptian chariots at their back, big body of water at their front. They, they insulate, faith starts to drop. They start to think, oh man, God just brought us out here to have us be killed on the banks of the Red Sea. They start to falter in their faith. But God speaks to Moses and he tells, he tells them to tell the people, 
Start moving. By faith, you start walking towards that water and I'll part it. They live, by faith, they do that. They take a step. They don't get to see the water part before they walk, but they take those steps and God is faithful to his promise. The Red Sea parts. They cross across on dry land and once they're safe, those waters close back on the Egyptians and they're decimated. This brings the children of Israel to, to a place that ends up being known as the wilderness. It's not too long after this that at Mount Sinai, God gives them uh, the Ten Commandments. And uh, it's not long after that, that and around the same time that they come to the edge of Canaan and, and decide, well, I don't know if we want to just rush in there. Let's send some spies in first and kind of see what's going on. So they send these spies in, 12 of them, and, and 10 come back and say, no, man, I don't know what God's talking about because this land is great. It's everything he said. However, the people here are huge. We're like grasshoppers to them. Uh, they're going to destroy us. There's no way we can go in and take this land. Two of the spies said, no, that's not true. Well, everything they're saying is true. However, God is with us and we should go. Unfortunately, the people of Israel collectively, they listen to the 10 spies. And what that means is now for 40 years, an entire generation of people is going to wander in that wilderness. They're just going to walk a big circle. And uh, as that generation dies off, it comes to the time for uh, the next generation, ones that weren't held responsible for the lack of faith of the, last, the last generation. And Joshua was one of those spies that went in and came out and said, we can do this because God said we can. Uh, not even Moses, the great leader that led them out of Egypt, was able to cross into the promised land. He died there. But now Joshua takes them across the River Jordan and into this promised land. And they begin this time. We're, we're, now we're around the book of Joshua and Judges come out of uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We're hitting Joshua now, this, this time of conquest. Uh, there's an important detail to remember, though, while they were in the wilderness. God set this thing up for them, that even though this was kind of a time of punishment and learning what it means to actually follow and trust God, he was still there with them. For part of that experience, he led them by a pillar of fire in the day and a pillar of cloud by night and had this whole thing set up where they built a tabernacle, which was like this moving tent where God's presence would, would dwell and where they could offer sacrifices uh, at different times for different things uh, in order to atone for their sin, to tell God thank you and, and so many of the things. And, and if you go and you look at the, the tabernacle and the, the way those ceremonies worked and all that God instructed them in terms of that, we see so many uh, parts of that that are just pointing forward to what God is going to do in the ultimate sacrifice in Christ. And they get past that time, they get to the edge of Canaan, and here they go. And the first place they hit is a place called Jericho, high-walled city, very difficult from a military perspective to do anything about. you got a bunch of people with swords and maybe some rudimentary weapons, but nothing that's going to bring down big stone walls. And God calls these people to march around this city seven times, to shout, to praise God as they're doing it, and that the city walls would come down. And so they do it. They march around those walls seven times. They're shouting God's praise. They're declaring as loud as they can. They're blowing shofars. They're, 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 they're making a racket. And the walls of Jericho come down. And you may think, well, that's just some crazy story about the, the first conquest. But you've got to see that so many times in this, in this journey that God's people went on with him, they came up to a place where they had none of the equipment necessary to get the job done. They couldn't do it. They didn't have a way to bring those walls down. They had to trust 
God by faith. And if they would obey him, they would see him do something they could not do on their own. And so the walls of Jericho come down. They go in and begin to conquer that land. There's havoc ensues. We end up in the book of Judges. It's kind of back and forth. It's a rough time. Uh, Israel begins to kind of get into this loop and this cycle of sinning against God and then humbling themselves and being brought back. And it just it goes over and over again. And in that, you know, it's very easy for us to see, man, wow, these, these ancient people just couldn't get it, right? But that's really not why that history was recorded for us. I mean, it is informational so that we can see what's happening, but at the very same time, we're supposed to see ourselves in that, that we have a tendency to go in a circle. We have a tendency to obey God sometimes when it's convenient, but then fall away or get apathetic or whatever that looks like, and, and we need to see ourselves in that. That's part of what that's for. But that's happening around the same time in the book of Judges. There's this precious story. It's like the Bible takes a break, and it's called the book of Ruth. And you see what happens there is, there's this Moabite woman that was married to somebody that was of the nation of Israel. And uh, that wasn't supposed to happen, but it did. And so you got this Moabite woman. Her name is Ruth, and her husband dies, and her whole, the whole family dies, and she, she's with her mother-in-law, who's a Hebrew. She's going to return home and uh, be with her people. And Ruth says, well, I'm with you, man. Wherever you go, I'm going. Your God's my God. That's how it's going to go. And so she goes back home with her, and she's working in the fields, gleaning, trying to just make enough for the two of them to survive. Basically, what, what, what's left over at the end of the harvest, she's able to pick that up, hopefully eat a little and sell a little and, and not die. And there's this guy, his name's Boaz, and he notices her. I saw this quote recently, I'd forgot about it. It said that Bo, Boaz noticed Ruth while she was working, not twerking. And I don't know... Uh, I don't know how deep that is or how much it matters, but uh, I don't know. I think it's pretty profound. So just whatever you want to do with that, young ladies. Uh, she was working, not twerking. But it's a beautiful story. It's, it's not about a lack of dance moves on Ruth's part. It's about the fact that Ruth had nothing going for her. All she had was loving and serving her mother-in-law and throwing herself at the mercy of her God. It wasn't even her God. She's a Moabite. But God, in his great mercy causes Ruth to catch Boaz's attention. And Boaz, just by the way Jewish law worked and the Hebrew law worked, he was able to be a kinsman redeemer. This is the language used where he can basically, he can marry her and take up the land and everything that was her husband so that she is saved from that uh, wretched position of basically just being at the mercy of uh, whatever happens. And, and we, in that, in Boaz's redemption of Ruth, we see an incredible picture of the way Christ redeems us when we are haggard and hopeless and have no way to improve our own station uh, because that's where each one of us finds ourselves spiritually. It's very interesting as well. Uh, when, when the spies had come in uh, to Canaan, they, they, had, they had originally they had met this woman. Her name was Rahab. And uh, there's, it's not fully known one way. Some people think she was just an innkeeper. Some people think she was a harlot. But either way, she made a way so that these spies would not be caught. She basically betrayed her own people to help God's people. And uh, it's very interesting that she goes on to marry a guy named Salomon, who by the, the two of them end up having Boaz. So Boaz is, is potentially the son of this woman of ill repute, it's very interesting. He then was able to see the beauty of a Moabite woman who would have been treated like a dog by most Hebrews, who would have been treated as uh, 
basically tainted goods because she had been married and her husband died. He saw value in this woman that no one else did. And it may just be partially because of who his mother was. They have a son named Obed. They have a son named Jesse. Jesse has a son named David. And the story really gets interesting. During that time of the judges, Israel was going buck wild. It, it becomes clear that we need, we, we need a ruler. God's intent was always to have a theocracy, for him to be king. But the people, they begin to cry for, for a human king. They wanted a king like everybody else. And so God says, listen to me. This is how that's going to go. If you do that, they're gonna, it's, it's going to go bad for everybody. Yeah, that's fine, God, but we want a king. Anybody else ever in here ever known that God has said clearly, if you do that, it's going to go bad, but you said, yeah, I want it anyways. Anybody else ever done that? Or you thought about doing it? Yep, amen. Well, what happens? It goes bad. Saul's the first king. Not a good one. During this time, Jesse has this son named, Dave, son named David. He's young and kind of the runt of the litter. Prophet comes. God sends him to anoint the next king. And uh, Jesse lines all his sons up. Prophet goes down each one. God says, nope, not that one. Nope, not that one. Nope, it's not that one either. He says to Jesse, you got any other sons? He's like, well, I got this other one, but he's out there tending sheep. Surely that's not the one you're looking for. Prophet says, bring him. He anoints David. David's the one that God has selected. A few years later, David is running out of lunch to his brothers. They're on the battlefield. They've lined up in this valley against the Philistines. And the Philistines have a champion. His name is Goliath. The Bible calls him a giant. Huge man. Warrior from birth. Savage. All of the armies of, of Israel, the armies of the living God, are, are shaken in their boots. They're terrified of this guy because he keeps coming out every day. He's cursing God. He's cursing God's armies. Calling out for somebody to come and to meet him in battle. And they're all shaken. Well, David shows up. Drops off lunch, but here's what's going on. Something in him rises up. He goes and he tells the king, a lion tried to steal one of my father's sheep. I grabbed it and I killed it. I killed it. A bear tried to grab one of my father's sheep. I killed it too. I'm going to tell you right now, this Philistine's not going to be any different. King tries to armor him up, give him his, own, his royal armor. David's like, nah, this isn't working. I don't need that. Bible says he goes and grabs five smooth stones. He's got his staff. It's interesting that Jewish scholars that I've read have said that those staffs, oftentimes men would carve carvings into them to remind them of previous battles, to remind them of times when God had been faithful. It's very likely that facing David on that staff was a picture of the lion and the bear as he ran forward towards Goliath. He runs at him. They exchange banter. David's is better. He slings a stone, sinks it in Goliath's forehead. Goliath dies. David cuts his head off. Songs begin to be sung about him. Time goes on. David's anointed as king. He's a good king. He's not a perfect king. Messes up bad, specifically with a woman named Bathsheba, whose husband he tries to murder and ends up succeeding in order so that he can cover up the sin of adultery with her. They have a son who the prophet Nathan lets him know is not going to live as a result of that sin. Interesting as well that 
another son from the line of David and Bathsheba is found in the genealogy of Christ himself, but I can't get into that. I'm trying to, I'm trying to tell you the whole Bible story, so don't want, to, don't want to get off on that rabbit trail. David has a son. His name is Solomon. He's the next king. He's an okay king, but he likes women too much. Sins by bringing in women of all different uh, nationalities doesn't matter. That's not the point, but different religions. He begins to get soft in his commitment to God. Causes lots of problems for him and for his people. God does allow a temple to be built in this time. His worship is no longer in a movable tent, but in this place, the city of David, Jerusalem. Solomon dies. There's a series of kings after that. Basically, all these kings... There's a couple good ones in there. Josiah is of, of repute. He's one to name. There's some that would say Josiah was a better king than King David. But the rest basically just do a terrible job and fulfill everything God said about why human kings are a bad idea. Israel, over and over again, pain, destruction as a result of this sin, worshiping of idols and other gods. Part of how God begins to deal with that. Uh, and part of what judgment looks like is the kingdom split in two. You've got Israel and Judah, and then they begin to be overtaken. The Assyrians, the Babylons, uh, the Babylonians, they come in as a part of God's judgment. God's people are taken into exile. It's during this time you're beginning to get into the books of the prophets. You've got Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah, and, and in their time they're prophesying about contemporary events. They're prophesying about the brokenness that they're experiencing as a people as a result of sin, but in the midst of that and in and through that, they're looking forward by the power of the Spirit and they're prophesying of a coming redemption that's going to stop this haggard cycle that they seem to have been stuck in now for hundreds of years. They begin to talk about, Isaiah begins to talk about one that's going to be born and that he's going to be a man of sorrows, and that he's going to be pierced through for our transgressions. And Jeremiah talks about a man acquainted with grief and sorrows, and, and we begin to see through the time of the prophets and through this time in the exile uh, the, the results of sin, but also the promise of God's coming redemption. During that whole situation, there's a woman that God uses in a mighty way. Her name is Esther. There's, there's a plan being cooked up by a guy named Haman. He wants to get all the Hebrews killed, and Esther steps up. Esther puts herself at great risk to talk to her husband, the king. She had basically been brought in. Uh, she was a Hebrew, but had been brought in as one of the king's wives, but one of many, uh, a terrible situation and a practice in that day, but it put her in position. That, that, was, that was a form of slavery and a difficult place to be, but it put her in a position that she was able to get the king's ear, and she approaches him humbly, and she basically calls out uh, the treachery of the man trying to destroy her people. This is in the same time as, this is with the exile and the prophets and everything that's going on. As you follow through the prophets, you get, you get the bigger books, and then you get to the littler books, and then you get to this book at the end called Malachi, and it, it points forward, and there's these hopeful glimpses of the fact that something's coming, and then there's 400 years of silence. God says nothing. After 400 years of silence, Jesus, the promised Messiah, is born in Bethlehem. He's here. Shepherds are told, wise men are told, 
Satan again tries to use a king to kill him. It doesn't work. They escape. They flee. They come back. Jesus grows in wisdom and stature. The Bible says he's baptized. The Spirit of God is upon him. He begins to do public ministry. He's fawned over and loved by some, hated by many. Continues in the power of the Spirit, preaching the kingdom of God is coming. It's very interesting that all those years ago, God's people came to a mountain to receive the law. And then one day Jesus sat on a mountain and gave some law. You ought to think about sometime real deep and real long, the juxtaposition between Sinai and where Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. There's a lot of beauty there for you. Jesus preaches, he heals, he feeds, he loves. And in the end, those that were threatened by the fact that he was basically turning their man-made religion on its head, he was undercutting the authority they had built up for themselves, they begin to stir up crowds, they begin to hatch this plan where they could accuse Jesus of trying to overthrow the oppressive government that was there. They finally end up with Jesus standing next to a guy named Barabbas, a known thief, a known rapscallion. And the poor guy put in charge of making a decision about what's going to happen, he, he knows. He knows that Jesus is innocent. He wants nothing to do with it. And so he tries. He thinks, okay, I know what I can do. I'll get Jesus out of this. He says, according to your customs, somebody should be let go. So why don't, why, why don't I give you guys a choice? You guys can have Barabbas or you can have Jesus. The crowd cries out for Barabbas. They want Jesus crucified. Satan, of course, is part of stirring this up because he's so foolish. He knows. He knows the prophecy. He was there in the garden when God said he's going to crush your head. But he's so foolish. He's so blinded by pride. He couldn't see how God was going to do it. He couldn't see that the, the little plan he was making was playing into God's bigger plan. And so they did take Jesus. They did whip him and beat him and they wove a crown of thorns and shoved it down upon his head. They spat on him. They ripped his beard from his face. They hurled insults at him. They marched him through town, made him carry his own cross up a hill, and then they nailed him to it through the most sensitive nerve centers in the body, through the wrists and through the feet. They hung him there. They continued to scream at him. They continued to Say, hey, if you're the king of the Jews, if you're the son of God, if you're who you say you are, then come on down. You can do it. Come off that cross. And even as all that's going on, Jesus, in a beautiful glimpse of the incredible patience and mercy and love of God, spends one of his last breaths to ask God the Father to forgive the very ones who had put him there. Jesus breathes his last when he chooses to and says, it is finished. The Bible says the sky went dark, rocks split, the thick veil that was in the temple that used to separate God from man, that only priests could go back into this area, that that's where God's presence was, that veil it tore from top to bottom. We don't need that anymore. Because Jesus was taking on the position of high priest, and he was going to make it so that the ultimate promise could be fulfilled. They took Jesus down, they wrapped him in burial clothes, they put him in a tomb, borrowed a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea. Gave him a tomb. They put him in the tomb. But when he was living, he had said something. He had told some people one time, he said, if you destroy this temple, I'll raise it again in three days. And he was standing next to the temple. And so they, of course, thought he was talking about that. And that was one, another one of the reasons they were real offended by him. 
But he wasn't talking about that temple. He was talking about the temple of his body. And three days later, the Bible says, that stone was rolled away. Jesus, the Son of God, conquered sin and death. He rose from the grave. Came, talked to his disciples, let Thomas, who was doubting, who said out of his own mouth, he said, I will not believe the Lord is risen until I put my hand in his side and I touch the wounds in his hands. And we see the mercy, the incredible mercy and patience of God as Jesus says to Thomas, come. Come put your hand here. Come and put your hand here. Jesus tells his disciples to wait because he's sending a helper for them. He then ascends into glory. Before he ascends, the last thing he says to him, this is at the end of the book of Matthew, he says, go into all the world. Make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. And lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age. The last words of the master given to his disciples. From there... They're encouraged but scared. They don't know what this looks like. They're all huddled in an upper room. This brings us into the book of Acts. They're in an upper room. It says all of a sudden, there's a sound of a mighty rushing wind. It says flames of fire come and sit upon the heads of the people that are there. The Spirit of God, the promised Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit has come to indwell these men. This is the fruition of God's plan of redemption. You see... He showed his hand back in the wilderness. He showed them, my intention is to be with you. My intention is to be near you. But you see, the plan had to play out. In the, in the time of the tabernacle, it wasn't, it wasn't time yet. In the time of the temple, it wasn't time yet. Jesus had to come and he had to conquer the sin problem so that by faith, people could trust in God, be cleansed and made righteous by faith so that now the Spirit of God could dwell in them. He didn't just want to be with us. He wanted to be in us. The book of Acts then tells us what happens when people are filled with the Spirit of God. We see Peter go out into the street and preach a sermon, and thousands begin to clamor. What must we do to be saved? It goes on from there. They're doing all that they believe Jesus wants them to do, and then there's this other guy. His name's Saul, and he's doing what he thinks God wants him to do. But he's dead wrong. You see, he's a zealot, and he hates Christians. He thinks that they're a, a, a cult and a sect that is pulling away glory from the one true God. And so he's on a road to Damascus one day. He's headed to go persecute these Christians. And God meets Saul. Jesus meets Saul right there on the road to Damascus. Shows up in such radiant glory that Saul is knocked to the ground. And he begins to say, Master, who, who are you? And Jesus says, it's me. I'm the one you're persecuting. Why do you keep persecuting my people and persecuting me? It says, scales, it was so bright as like welders burn. Paul can't see. He's got to be led by the hand at the next town. He meets some Christians who are nervous, but they show him mercy and they feed him and they give him a message from God. Paul goes on from there and never looks back. Acts shows what it looks like when this guy gets full of the Holy Ghost. This guy gets a hold of the message of Jesus and his gospel. He begins to go out into the ancient world far beyond Jerusalem. 
goes into Asia and all the areas around and begins to raise up men, teach men to be pastors, teach men to love Jesus and to love people, and he begins to plant churches. And then we see, as a result of that, the communications that he has with these churches through the letters. That's what Romans and Corinthians and Galatians, that's what we're seeing. We're seeing Paul the Apostle communicating with these churches that in this incredible labor of love through unbelievable difficulty and trials in order to get the job done, he's able to plant these churches. He's able to sow the seed of the gospel into these different cities. And so we've got a church at Galatia and a church at Philippi and a church at Ephesus. Paul ends up losing his life, ultimately as a result, at the hands of Rome for refusing to deny that Christ is actually the supreme ruler and emperor over all. And there's one guy at the end. It's one of my favorites. His name is John. They try to kill him too. First attempt doesn't work. They boil him in oil, and he lives. Since they don't know what else to do with him, they cast him out to this island. It's called Patmos. And on this island, Jesus visits John, and he gives him this incredible vision. It's called the book of Revelation, where first he gives some warnings to the churches. He gives some warnings about where they think they're doing right and where they're totally missing it. He gives them encouragement on ways he wants them to keep going. And then he opens up this beautiful vision to John. He shows, shows him the, the, the battle, the, the spiritual reality of, of the battles that God is fighting against that ancient serpent, Satan, and all of the rest of the forces of darkness. But he also shows him the ultimate culmination of God's victory, that in the end, Jesus returns with feet like brass and fire in his eyes and a sword coming out of his mouth, that ultimately Jesus, in the end, defeats evil and sin and sickness and darkness forever. And that ultimately God's triumph is unquestioned and that every single entity that would oppose him is vanquished forever, and that the ultimate reality, the ultimate eternal destination for every person who has trusted God by faith and has become, as a result, a child, an heir, just like Abraham, that every one of them will now spend eternity basking in the unveiled glory of God himself to the degree there is no sun, there is no moon, there is no need for an external light source because God himself lights the heavens and that eternally and for always people from every tribe, nation, and tongue will be gathered in the praise and in the glorious presence of God Almighty. That is the story. That's the story. The question today is, do you believe that's your story? The question today is, have you surrendered to Christ in such a way that it can be your story? Because this is not the story for everybody. You, you, you hear what Galatians said. You see how the story went. It is those that trust God by faith, like Abraham, that become heirs of the promise. God knew. Do you remember when, you remember when I was reading Galatians? It was, I realized it seemed like it was off topic, but it's not. It said the law was given to us as a tutor to lead us to justification in Christ. What the law taught us is that we can't keep the law. The whole point of the law was to break in us the prideful assumption that we can do this ourselves. Jesus came and said, in, in, in no uncertain terms, there is one way to eternal life. There is one way to the Father, and it is through me. 
and me alone. And the way you take that path, the way you open that door, is that you trust me by faith. There's only one way. So the question today, dear friend, is not how good have you been or how bad have you been this week or in the, the totality of all of your life. That's not the question. The question is this. Can you acknowledge that you are imperfect? Are you willing to trust in Jesus and the fact that his perfect life and his substitutionary death absorbed and took away, it, it paid the price so that the wrath of God you have earned for yourself does not have to be what you end up getting. You don't have to get justice. You can get mercy. You don't have to get the wrath of God. You can get the forgiveness of God. There had to be a sacrifice. There had to be somebody to step in or else all of us would have only ever got exactly what we deserve, which was the wrath of God in its fullness. The question is not, have you been good enough to avoid God's wrath? The question is, do you believe Jesus was good enough to save you from God's wrath? Do you believe the finished work of Christ? Do you believe what the Bible teaches? That God made a way for sinful humans to be reconciled to him, to be redeemed from their sin, to be rescued from themselves and from the slavery to the forces of darkness. Will you believe? When John wrote his gospel, he really encapsulated the entirety of what this whole story is for. People have argued about this. People have tried to tear this thing down. This Bible has one point, and John grabbed that point beautifully when he said, the reason I wrote my book, the reason I wrote my gospel, is for one thing, so that you may believe. That's what this whole thing is for. This whole Bible is to lead you on your knees in front of Christ, surrendering yourself, and thankful for the reality that he will receive you just like you are. This whole Bible was written so that you may believe in Christ, the soon-to-come-again King. I praise God for this story. I praise God that it's true. I praise God that it, it matters above all else. I'm going to quickly give you a couple implications. I just told you the story. Hallelujah. But what do we do with this story? Quickly. First of all, we learn it. We need to learn this story. The more familiar we are with the story of the Bible, the more beautiful and powerful it will be to us. We need to learn this story. We need to know it intimately and intricately. It's a beautiful gift to us, and we should treat it that way. So we need to learn this story. We need to learn from it. These aren't just ancient stories that are recorded so we have information. They teach us about us and about God and show us that we have hope for transformation. These stories aren't just to give us the information of what happened. It's to lead us to transformation through the power of Christ. We learn it, we learn from it, and we teach it to others. We teach it to others. This is a huge part of what it means to make disciples. You remember that thing Jesus said right before he ascended? To go into all the world and make disciples, to teach them all that I have commanded. We need to not only learn it, learn from it, we need to know how to teach it to others. We need to ask God to give us the strength to overcome whatever personality quirks would make it very uncomfortable for us for us to teach it to others. We need to know that every single one of us that has been swept up into this redemptive wave of Christ 
and this redemptive work that he has laid upon us, calling us ambassadors of this beautiful gospel. Every single one of us that has received and tasted of the mercy of Christ need to know that we are now commissioned then to share it, to teach it to others. And here's what we need to know. We have to know this story. We have to know that we are called to show all who will listen that this is our story and it can be their story as well. And why does it matter? Can't I? Paul said, I, all, I, I seek, all I seek to know is Christ and him crucified, right? That's true. Why did he say that? He said that because people were getting confused about a whole bunch of auxiliary stuff that wasn't that important. But he wasn't talking about the scriptures. Because if you listen, if you go read the way Paul writes his letters, if you read the way that Paul builds his arguments as he's trying to convince people about Christ crucified and why that matters and that that is the only hope for all mankind, do you know what he's using? Do you know what he's referencing? He's referencing the rest of the story. He's pulling from the rest of the story. He knows the story. And he knows that trying to separate the gospel from the rest of the story, it makes no sense. And that's sometimes why our gospel lacks power. That's sometimes why it doesn't have the effect that we want it to have. Because for many of us, we do have this fragmented truth that Jesus loves us. But if we don't understand it in the framework of the overall story, it loses much of its effect and power. By God's grace, we need to seek to be able to walk people through what happened when God made us, when we fell, how he saved us, and where he's taken us. And we're a part of it. We're a part of this story. The truth of the gospel flows out of the history we see in the Bible, and it makes no sense if we try to separate it. Jesus' kingdom Jesus, the idea of Messiah, it flows out of this history. And you might think, well, that seems very exclusive because it's the Hebrew history. It's the history of that one selective people that God picked. But friends, we already dealt with that. We went to Galatians and we saw that you're a child of Abraham. You're a child of promise by faith. And so it's not just the people of Israel's story. It's all who have come to trust in Christ by faith. This is our story. We need to learn it and learn from it and be able to teach it. And we're going to need God's help to do all that. May we be a people who are committed to knowing where we have come from. May we be a people who have the wisdom to know that our history teaches us how to live in the here and now. And may we continue to search and seek that we may see how all the scriptures are pointing to Jesus, the Lamb of God and the Savior of the whole world. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now in the name of Jesus. God, we thank you for the story. Thank you that you included 14 generations from Shem all the way down to Abram so that we can see that over all that time, God, sometimes, Lord, in, in 14 days we get impatient. Sometimes in 14 hours we're, we're troubled if you haven't moved the way we think you should move. But God, please help us to see that for 14 generations you were working and weaving, that you were doing all that was necessary to bring about a situation where a man named Abram ended up right in the right place where you needed him where he would marry a girl named Sarah, <laughs> where you could promise them this son, Isaac, who would beget Jacob, who would beget Joseph, who would save his people from starvation, 
Thank you that of those people, someone rose up and birthed Moses, and that Moses, you raised up as the champion of your people to save them from Pharaoh, and that you took those people on a journey through the wilderness, that you brought them into the promised land that you promised them, that you've been patient, you've been working this plan. Thank you that this is not the story of just one ancient people group, but God, that you've swept us into it, that you've included us into it. Thank you that those people went on to settle the land you gave them, to have kings. But even that didn't stop them from the cycle of sin and rebellion against you. I thank you, God, that you kept working. You were patient. You didn't give up. Thank you that you kept weaving your will. Thank you that this led to the time of the promised one, the Messiah coming, that Jesus was born of a virgin in Bethlehem, just as was foretold, that Jesus grew, never sinned once, did every single thing you asked him to do, said every word you asked him to say, and submitted himself, submitted himself to death and even death on a cross in our place for our sins. Thank you that you then sent us the Holy Spirit that you've sealed the promise, that you've empowered us for the mission of going and telling this glorious story to the ends of the earth. Father, forgive us for the distractions. We get distracted by many lesser stories. We get distracted in our own junk. God, please forgive us for that and help us. Help us to come back to the place of seeing the beauty of your story, the importance of your story, and being thankful every moment we are allowed to be included in it. Lord, please anoint us as your people to learn your story, to teach your story. God, please open up opportunities for us. Lord, some of us, we have a burning desire. We have a fire in our bones like the prophet did. We want to share, but it just doesn't seem like the opportunities come up, Lord. Whether it's our eyes are dull and we don't see those chances or they really aren't happening, God, we just ask that you would help us. Help us run us into people that are ready to hear this beautiful story, that are ready, God. Lord Jesus, you said the, the harvest is ripe, but the workers are few. God, we are here saying, here we are. Send us. Lord, we don't want to just live in a bubble of our own consumption. We don't want to be selfish. We don't want to just focus on what we want or what we think or what we, the priorities that we have set before you, God. That's not what we want. That's not our deepest desire. Our deepest desire is to join you in what you're doing, to see your story unfold. And we're asking you to anoint us, to equip us, to help us, to send us, and to make opportunities available. We need your help. We can't do this without you. Thank you that you didn't just call us to this, but you said you'd be with us to the end of the age. Lord, we look forward to the end of the age. We look forward to that great and glorious day when our labor is done and we get to join you forever. When all the pain and the sin and the sickness and all of its results have been vanquished. Lord, we live in the tension until then yearning for that day, but knowing that you have a mission for us now. Help us to walk that line correctly to your glory and for our good. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies. 
or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.